You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 81. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. All right, folks, today we have a conversation about the crisis in science and junk science, I think it's sometimes called, although we, I don't think we did use the term in the entire discussion. We recorded this discussion, I recorded this with Aaron late at night, so our our usual filters were pretty much off, making it a lot more fun. Maybe we should always record like this. I don't know. Let me know if you think so. But um, before I bring it up, remember, if you're on to your maybe second or third episode of The Local Maximum and you're enjoying these conversations and these interviews that I'm having, uh, I don't have any ads or Patreon yet. I don't have any monetization yet. Um, I'm planning to, but, but not for a while. So if you can... Uh, please take 15 seconds and leave a five-star review or share on social media. Really help me out a lot and it'll help me you know, continue to uh, bring all this great information f- from you, for to you. Uh, <laughs> all right. Next week, we resume interviews and I've got some really great ones in the pipeline. Uh, last week, I recorded one with Henry Abramson, who puts out free Jewish history lectures online. Um, and it's uh, his experiences with that are, are really fascinating. So um, please remember to subscribe. Let's bring it up. All right. Welcome back, Aaron. I know that we've had a little bit of difficulties getting lost in all of the um, click hole and click bait and whatever all that is. So uh, I hope we're ready. There's a lot of that stuff on the internet still. Yeah, I, I've, I've escaped. Um, I, I feel like uh, there, there should be some sort of uh, Dr. Livingston, I presume, uh, tagline for, for safely emerging into the clearing that we're in now. But uh, This all started when we were uh, trying to set up our show, and I got the most ridiculous email from Refinery29. It was someone saying, I'm 37 and single, and this is the hardest thing I've done as a single person. And I clicked, and it was like, moving. And I don't know. Well, see, I, I, I initially heard that as as a you know a, a legitimate difficult experience. Yeah. Uh, and then before you told me what the what the actual click through answer was, I realized that could also be the start to a porno. I didn't realize that until <laughs> I after I clicked on it. But I wonder if there's like a uh, anyway like like a. Um, uh, a subliminal thing. I, I don't know. I, I don't even want to know what that says. Let's not go down that road. Um, so <laughs> how, there's got to be a, a, a published paper out there on, on the science of clickbait, though, yeah. right? Oh, oh, uh, sure, sure. And, and perhaps that segues uh, directly into the topic we're talking about today. Okay, yes, exactly. <laughs> but I do want to come back to clickbait on a future show. I feel like I could send someone out on an assignment. could be you. It does It could be someone else to actually find clickbait and uh, put it on, uh, you know. This and, is dangerous. Yes. We, we need an intern for that because uh, they may never come back. We want someone expendable to go <laughs> yeah. into the click hole. <laughs> <We need it. laughs> All right, you're going into the click hole. We're not giving you a harness. Uh, you're just going to have to climb down and climb up. And yeah, if you, here's em- your burner phone, call us in a week. Right. And if you uh, safely emerge from the click hole, then, uh, then we have a really good show out of it. So <laughs> hopefully, yeah, that's a great idea. Good idea. Good idea. All right. So today I want to talk about, there's been a lot of articles recently about the reproducibility crisis in science. And this is something that I talk about all the time. Um, I talked about it. The, the, just to clarify, this is not about the dropping birth rate in the United States. No, 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 no. Um, 
I, I didn't even know there was one. Uh, but anyway, uh, this is about scientific articles uh, or, or scientific studies, you know, not being able to reproduce. Um, in, in other words, like, you know, junk science or studies that end up having to be reversed or, you know. And, um, and reproducibility is uh, a, a tenet of the scientific method. Yeah, that, yeah, it's pretty important. That if, if you can prove something, uh, prove is perhaps too strong a word, but if, if you have evidence, scientifically significant or statistically significant findings, they should be repeatable. Right. And this was, I mean, when I was in Lviv talking about uh, data science, given my course there, I started with motivation for learning Bayesian statistics and, and learning statistics in general. And one was this reproducibility crisis in science. That's really why you want to um, be up to date on your stats, even if you're not. Look, if you're mathematically inclined and machine learning inclined, you should you should look into that. But if you're not, you should at least learn into learn about like what the issues are around it, which is what this uh, podcast, Local Maximum, kind of helps you do. So we haven't actually covered the reproducibility crisis in science. I thought we covered it all the time. Uh, I don't know, but like <laughs> we haven't covered this since episode 22 on p hacking, which I think is almost a year ago. Probably, yeah, more than a year ago. Um, and uh, we haven't covered it since. But this is not an issue that's going to go away just by pointing out that a lot of scientific studies are wrong or incorrect or unreproducible uh, doesn't mean that they're going to stop being produced because there are a certain, uh, there's a certain incentive structure in place that uh, c- keeps these articles like being created over and over again and that's not going away and so i don't know i fear it's going to get worse before it gets better it's it certainly seems that way um but 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 before we uh throw in the towel uh and and conclude that science is doomed uh maybe, maybe we should dig into a little bit of what what exactly what what form does this reproducibility crisis take Oh, well, there are a lot of different forms. Uh, The one that I talk about, which is probably not entirely fair, but the one I talk about in the Bayesian statistics uh, context is how frequentist statistics has something called a p-value, which is, and this is a hard one to kind of internalize what a p-value is, but it's like, how likely would, how likely are you to get a result this extreme uh, given that you're, experiment group and your control group really are the same. So in other words, let's say, I don't know, pick some horrible experiment that you can run. Let's say I, let's say I have some mice and I have one group of mice that I give like a really nice, you know, cage to, and then I have another group of mice that I torture, which I hear is what scientists like to do. Uh, (laughs) And then I find that the ones that are tortured actually uh, don't live as long. And then the question is, well, how likely is it to get that result just by having two random groups um, or a result more extreme than that, like with with them living even less long? So uh, that's sort of the question. But the problem is, you know, if you run these experiments over and over, eventually you'll get a hit. In other words, just by pure luck, you'll get a p-value that looks significant. And um, if you run these experiments... If you run enough experiments, eventually you'll get something that uh, is uh, is publishable, and that's a problem. Yeah, and and I I guess a big part of it is that there is not the incentive to attempt to replicate uh, work that has already been done. Um, that that there's there's no glory in confirming somebody else's results. Uh, 
it, it yeah with an article that simply says uh, newsflash thing we already knew still true yeah also I mean there's not a lot of incentive to invalidate your own results uh, because... well yeah sure there, there's there's that <laughs> that's also a problem um, and it's a, it's a uh, problem in academia it's a problem in business yeah, too un- unless unless by invalidating your own results you are coming up with something much grander and more earth shattering right um, right. Um, which, which is rarely the case in, in these contexts. Even if you're working in a corporation, look, if you find that what all the executives believe is not true, sometimes you got to go in and try to change their mind. But sometimes uh, people don't want to change if, they're, if they've been staking their career on this the whole time. <laughs> you know, they're not going to want to change. So a few fun articles on this out. First of all, on Reddit uh, today, or very, you know, which will be a couple weeks ago when this goes out, um, it's... Someone, what's the headline from this Reddit? Is that this is this post is by Chief Cull K U L. Um, I've reproduced 130 plus research papers about predicting the stock market, coded them from scratch, and recorded the results. Here's what I've learned. Um, so basically, you kind of scroll down, and um, how do I put this? He learned that, uh, yeah, they're all full of crap, is what he learned. <laughs> uh, <laughs> to, to be more specific, um, he learns that a lot of them had results that are not significant. Um, a lot of the people who write these papers say, well, you know, once we put the paper out there, of course it's not going to work because people are now using the results of our paper in trading. And so they've traded away the advantage. But then he said, no, I even tried it with old data. It still doesn't work. So sorry. And uh, another thing is... Um, yeah, and there's there's a question about the value of a a scientific finding if uh, you you have some sort of research uncertainty principle that once you publish the research its findings are no longer value valid. Uh, it, it raises a question of was it ever valid? Right, right. Or, or was how, it just how, luck? how useful is that information? Well, it's use for if somebody actually used it to trade away the advantage. It was very useful for them because they made a ton of money, um, but. Um, you don't know if that's what really happened or not, or whether it was just a pattern that happens to crop up, and um, but was just kind of random fluctuations of people looking for patterns. It's it's sometimes hard to say. He said in some cases you did get a real advantage, but that advantage was so small that the trans that you know they did things like ignore the transaction fees, and then the trading, uh, you know that 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 trading. Um, uh, I want to say trading bot. I really should say the trading strategy. The advantage goes away when you take transaction fees into account. Um, and what was the other one that he found? You know, people using data from the future. That's a common one, more common than you would think. And that's what happens when somehow you have, you know, I'm trying to predict the price of a stock for tomorrow. And the only data that's going to be available to me are data is data from today and before today. Uh, but somehow data from tomorrow already slipped in, which I'm not going to be available for. And that could happen very easily if, like, you know, the data in the past had been adjusted in the future. Like, things like that do happen. Yeah, um, well, so. and, and in the context of predicting the stock market, um, thinking of this in terms of past, present, and future makes sense. Uh, but but from a more generic approach, it, it's simply a case of contaminating your training data with your testing data. Right. Uh, well, that, yeah. That, that if you if you have... Uh, data that's in both or, or, or some sort of leakage between the two, well, th- then you don't have a, a legitimate comparison of your, how, how your, 
your algorithm or your strategy is actually performing. Right. Uh, and I love this. He had a um, he had an award for most frustrating paper, and he <laughs> awarded to this paper called a deep learning framework for financial time series using stacked autoencoders and long short term memory. Now. I I should talk about what this is. This is the type of thing that you would use in something like image recognition. And stock market prediction and image recognition are two very different problems. First of all, image recognition, I believe, is like a very solvable problem. We know that because our eyes and brains solve it. It might be difficult, but it's, well, okay. I mean, stock market prediction is solvable too, but it's different in that it's, um, it's adversarial. And like you said, the, the advantage can be traded away. Um, so, yeah. uh, there's, there's not a scenario where, uh, if, if, if I buy, if, if I observe that, uh, the next 10 pixels are likely to be green. And so I invest in green pixels, that's going to change the likelihood of those pixels being green that you don't get that in an image. Right. Analysis. Right. You get optical illusions. Sometimes both humans and machines have optical illusions, but in reality, like I know when I see someone walking down the street and it's not like the next person walking down the street is going to, uh, be more invisible or something like that. Or, I mean, you know, it, it, we've evolved over a long time to, to see things and the landscape doesn't, doesn't change, um, at least not, you know, at least not to any wide degree in, in, in contrast to what the stock market does. And also the stock market, the patterns, uh, like the, there's a qualitative difference, the type of patterns that you see there, you know, the patterns in images are very rich and complex, and they are layer upon layer upon layer of abstractions until I get what's this, you know, uh, 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 a water bottle, right? Um, but before that, I see certain textures, certain images, certain shapes, you know, and I kind of put it together and I have this concept of a water bottle. Whereas the stock market, okay, that could be affected by macro trends, profitability, but is it really all of these? concepts kind of building on each other with lots of different layers of abstraction in the same way. It really isn't. So something designed for image recognition, I don't think we can um, say it will automatically work for stock market analysis. Um, although people will keep trying, and I'm sure that some people do it successfully. Um, but if they do, they won't be telling us about it. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess the allegation here is, is, at least in the case of these particular studies, uh, that that there's p hacking or overfitting, uh, not necessarily anything malicious, uh, but but that the, the results can't be replicated. Uh, that that these techniques cannot be used in the same way that they were in the original paper. Oh, but people want to make a name for themselves. They want to make a name for themselves in finance. They want to make a name for themselves in academia. And who's going to check the paper? <laughs> You know, they might get accepted to a journal or a conference, but even they're not going to try to reproduce the paper. They're just going to read the paper technically to see that it all checks out. Um, well, right. So, so there, there is the process of review, um, and and I do not work in in uh, in the field of of, of science. Uh, it feels weird to to refer to it so broadly, but uh, so I'm not involved in peer review. Uh, but is is replication ever part of the review process or is it or is it purely just have these experts in the field read the paper and uh if if they can't point out any glaring errors or mistakes uh then then we're good to go yeah i think they're checking for logic and consistency and uh, does it 
address all of the you know current literature is it significant all those questions and, and i can understand why they don't want to delay pub the publishing of the paper to have somebody go and fully replicate it oh yeah um because because that can take a significant amount of time and and they're not and being paid you, you've also then somewhat leaked the uh the the methodology that um you you get into uh, the the intellectual property dilemma of of first to file or first to publish uh, type scenarios, which I'm I'm sure would be uh, very uh, very politicized in the in the scientific academic world, uh, but at the same time, not having any sort of replication ra raises serious questions about the uh, how much how much weight we should assign to these findings. Yeah, I mean, imagine being you know an automated trader trying to trying to use these i mean i hear from people like these complicated ones no that's not the ones they're using you really want to find simpler ones with very clear advantages um that's that's sort of the track but I, well no, no one likes a black box yeah. and anything sufficiently complex might as well be a black box yeah and way more prone to overfitting uh certainly okay so the next story on this is a blog post by you know very well-respected, high-level Columbia statistician um, Andrew Gelman, but he's just he's just chucking bombs at people here. Which I like when people <laughs> like that do that. Uh, it's always it's always kind of funny. Um, well, so, I, I can't remember which episode it was, but I, I remember uh, uh, perhaps referring to him as friend of the show is, is overstepping. But uh, is it uh, Nassim Taleb? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, we 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 talked about. Uh, there, there was there was some beef in 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 that world uh, he's, uh, about he's waiting, using he's waiting on this particular beef ah okay yeah. oh yeah so this so is this totally isn't just uh, similar this is uh, immediately adjacent yes yes and right Andrew Gelman is a um, he's he's a big Bayesian statistics this Markov chain Monte Carlo stuff and I actually use some of his work and I read some of his papers I have his textbook right over there actually uh, I could pull out so. He just like what, what he he's sniping at who? Cass Sunstein, which is a name that sounds familiar, but um, you might not know who he is. And he's just he's just defecating all over this guy. <laughs> I mean, what is it? But anyway, he says even when he says, "Oh, I'm sure he has good intentions," it's like uh, I don't know. Okay, anyway, so uh, let's look at the original quote. So first of all, who is Cass Sunstein? Um, Cass Sunstein is a legal scholar at Harvard. Um, he worked on overseeing federal bureaucracy regulations, such as the Paperwork Production Act, which I actually talked about in episode 34 with Joe Crowback on, on data engineering. Oh, so ah. that's the type of, uh, man, who says, when I want to grow up, I want to work on overseeing federal bureaucracy regulations. But this- Somebody's got to do it or, or do that. Well, apparently it's, <laughs> he's a big deal. I mean, Cass Sunstein, you've heard of him. It sounds like he should be yeah. a, um, uh, a movie star. You know, Cass Sunstein <laughs> would be a way better field for someone with a name like that to be in. Well, yeah, it's, 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 it's very close to uh, Butch Cassidy. Yeah, I guess so. And, and the Sundance Kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you kind of put it together and rearrange it all. Um, okay. Um, anyway, so he wrote a tweet. Uh, this is Cass Sunstein now, not Andrew Gelman. He said, it is right and important to ask whether social science findings can be replicated, but in another life, the replication police would be Stasi. And I think that's like the, 
East German police under the communists. Then he wrote later yes. on, deleted it on the ground that it came across not as funny and as having a grain of truth, but as unkind and harsh to good people doing good and important work. Many thanks to you. Uh, so, okay. Yeah, I, I, I think he probably meant this in, in the same vein as calling someone a grammar Nazi. Right. But that term has been so devalued, grammar Nazi, that nobody thinks about real Nazis when they think about a grammar Nazi. Right. Whereas invoking the Stasi is a little bit different. Yeah. Um, well, at least. He... But but even so, get, getting getting to the, the 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 core of the issue. So beyond the the mudslinging, um, is is this question of are they being pedantic in saying ah oh, where's the replication or or perhaps is this just an excuse for well I don't like your finding it disagrees with my worldview or my philosophy so I'm going to cast doubt on it by saying where are the replication studies well that that has happened a lot uh, in history I should say that because well the the canonical example is does smoking cause cancer uh, so sure, the the, yeah. the, the um, the most important guy in frequentist statistics is R.A. Fisher. He was a statistician. I think he invented the p-value. He, to his dying breath, would say that smoking does not cause cancer and, you know, because you can't prove uh, a causality. And um, so, so he recognized there was a correlation, but he was debating causality? Exactly. Or, or was he debating, or, or was he doubting that there was even a correlation? No, no, no. He... Um, he admitted the correlation, but he kept on saying, well, you, you can't prove uh, causality, uh, which is not really true, uh, but it's, it's well, harder to prove. Does, does cancer cause smoking? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I, I only half-jokingly ask that. Right. Because maybe, because we do know, or, or at least we, we now think we know that there are certain uh, genetic predispositions predispositions to certain types of cancer. Right. And so maybe maybe those are tied to also predispositions to uh, pick up certain habits. Yeah, that's that, exactly. That are also correlated with smoking. That's exactly what he so said. You, I, I can see how you could construct an argument yeah. that that leads down this path. That's, that's um, what but, he did for but many it is, years. And he got paid. It, it is the that, the proverbial uh, path yeah. to hell, which is paved with good well, intentions. He got, he got paid very handsomely by the uh, tobacco industry. Um for many years to do that, uh, but it's but from what I've read, it sounded like he was really a true believer in that stuff. Um, um, but anyway, uh, so yes, you could sort of snipe at findings by asking where's the reproducibility, but it is a real problem. So I don't know. I feel like there has to be a lot of nuance. I don't know what um, uh, Cass Sunstein was talking about in particularly in this case. I think, I mean, I don't know. It could have been one situation that set him off. But anyway, uh, Gelman digs up a passage from Sunstein's book, Nudge, which was like from 10 years ago, citing some researcher that has now been discredited called uh, Wansink, Brian Wansink. So Cass Sunstein cites research of Brian Wansink. Wansink has been, dis dis they, he says, has been discredited as one of these people who kind of fudges his research. Uh, the findings were that when people were given more food, they ate more. So it's like, okay, you fill up someone's soup bowl automatically as they're eating the soup. They eat way more soup. Oh, this this was the the, the bowl that filled from the bottom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so ah, I I remember hearing and, about and this. And I, I think there was an ignoble prize awarded for yeah, this. Yeah, that, that might be the, the same guy. But the one that they were talking about here was popcorn. They were giving people stale ah. popcorn that didn't taste any good. And they gave some people a little bit of popcorn to watch in the movie. Who goes to the movies and has this happen to them? I want to know, like, <laughs> stay away from these from from these researchers. Let me tell you. Uh, okay, 
So you get popcorn, but it was stale popcorn. didn't taste good, but they gave some people a small thing of stale popcorn, and they gave some people a big thing of stale popcorn, and the people with the big thing of stale popcorn uh, ate more. And, okay, there are uh, conclusions to that, that there is definitely a correlation there, probably a causation there. But some of the results were things like people are easily fooled, you know, as, as, as one of the results. And I, I think that has to be talked about because that was kind of the point of the book. That's a point. A lot of people make that point a lot that, oh, people are easily fooled. On the other hand, have you ever tried running a marketing or advertising campaign? It is not that easy to fool people into buying your product. Uh, so, uh, Well, you, there's, there's a sucker born every minute, as P.T. Barnum famously yeah. said, or maybe apocryphally said. But, uh, but, but it takes a, uh, a, a person with certain talents to leverage that. Right, and also to find the sucker. So maybe most people are not easily fooled. Well, th- this, this actually gets to uh, an interesting thing about uh, spam emails yeah um, which which kind of loops back to, uh, to some of the clickbait we were talking earlier about um, but if if you've noticed that that in the last five years maybe even a little bit longer than that some of the the like Nigerian Prince scam emails right. that you you might still be getting have gotten it almost seems like they've gotten worse yeah like the and and it is specifically done so that they filter out all the people who would be skeptical so someone who is less likely to be willing to hand over their social security number and bank accounts is going to automatically look at that email and says, ah, oh, this is a scam delete. But somebody who looks at it and says, Oh, this, you know, Prince so-and-so has $40 million that he needs me to assist him with, with transferring. If, if you will fall for such a poorly formulated email, then you're much more likely to be able to be strung along for the full con. Gotcha. Uh, and, and so it's, 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 it's an interesting psychology methodology that, that, they're making their initial hook worse to increase the the uh, the yield of their pipeline. That's so interesting because I've engaged. They, they they do their best filtering with the first step, and then they've got gold the rest of the way through the process. I've engaged with some of these people to like waste their time and have a little fun, and it's yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, and again, he also points out people claim they weren't influenced, and and like the findings were well, they were influenced, they just didn't realize it. But also, um, you know, it, 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 statistically, he's saying it could have been that, no, the people who said they weren't influenced weren't influenced, um, but it was other people. Uh, so statistically might have been right. There, there's sort of this, like, I, I think the big question is over whether these subliminal messages are making us change in our big decisions and I'm not so, so sure. I think the, the, the big question that I'm thinking about in my head is when Google changes their auto-completes. Is yeah, that, I was going to say, this, this ties exactly back to what we were talking about. How, how much can... Are they changing uh, how someone can, votes? Can something like auto-complete specifically, something that, yeah. that you only see kind of a little bit of, uh, how, how much can that actually change election results? Right. And the answer is probably not zero, but, but it's also probably a pretty small number. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but it's but it's being able to quantify that would be useful, right? Right, and so um, it's I, I it's hard to say. I mean, this is an interesting issue. I don't know where each of the statisticians comes down on it, but I think I don't know. Taking a very negative, overly 
optimistic or overly pessimistic view on people um, is going to get you burned. Um, and for some reason, people who take, I know people who take an overly optimistic view of people are going to be disappointed, but people who take an overly pessimistic view just annoy me so much because they, I don't know. If you, they're, they're more likely to come out ahead more often, but they're also less pleasant people to be around. <laughs> hey, you're part of humanity, and if you don't like humanity, why don't you get out? Well, many of us are self-hating humans. So. <laughs> okay. That, that's to say nothing of the, uh, the pro-extinction uh, campaign within humanity. There but. is. Well, I... It, yeah, that's, some, that's another episode. Extreme environmentalism is, in some regards, considers human beings a virus on the planet that needs to be cured. Um, assuming, I mean, it's, well, anyway, I could probably say that much more passionately and eloquently uh, if I have it planned out. Um, so let's, let me read uh, just a couple quotes from the blog post that I think are. So, so these are, are quotes from Gelman? Gelman, yeah. Here's the point. From one standpoint, uh, Brian Wansink and Cass Sunstein are similar. They're both well-funded, NPR-beloved, Ivy League professors who've written best-selling books. They go on TV. They influence government policies. They're public intellectuals. All right, I get the type. Um, now, just 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 to to clarify, uh, one could easily read that statement and think that that Gelman is is some sort of uh, alt-right uh, pundit, uh, but, but that is not. not where he's coming no, from. No, 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 uh, he's not, um, and. No, he's a Columbia professor for crying out loud. Yeah, I, I, I just, I just wanted to anchor that yeah. that that just because he's he's throwing out this this NPR Ivy League, you know, uh, public intellectuals that it's it's not uh, pure right left bashing. Sheesh, that, is that, that is that where we're at right now? If you say that if you're annoyed uh, by public intellectuals, NPR Ivy League people, all of a sudden you're alt right because I, I, I've I, been annoyed I by think... those people ever since I entered the <laughs> Ivy League. Well, you. To to uh to to hijack a, an old comedy routine, uh, if 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 you dislike those things, uh, you might be a deplorable. Oh no, <laughs> I didn't vote for Trump. Come on. All right. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to drag us in that direction, yeah. but but I, I I wanted to confirm that th he's he's not saying this from a political standpoint, uh, more from a a philosophical. Yeah. All right. So to put, and then he ends with um, to put it another way, I'm disturbed that an influential figure such as Sunstein thinks that the junk science produced by Wansink and other purveyors of unreplicable research are masterpieces, while he thinks it's funny, with a grain of truth, to label careful, thoughtful analysts such as Brown, Dreb, Dreber, Simonson as Stasi. So I assume those are people who are involved in, in calling for more replication. Dude's picking the wrong side on this one. I, okay, I could see how maybe it's a little unfair if he's like, here's something you said nine years ago, and here's what you're saying now. Let's put them side by side, and it looks silly. But I think it's a valid point. Yeah, and and the the big question would be, has he ever walked back the... Because, uh, yeah, something that was published a decade ago, uh, was it known at the time that there were these issues with the study? Maybe, maybe not. If, if that's something that's come to light since then, has he walked back uh, his position? Uh, or, or is he uh, a firm believer in, um, in, in uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the right term for it, but the, the truthiness Most here. Most people. That, yeah, it, it's not factual, but, but the message that it was portraying is, is correct. Right. And so even if the facts don't back it up, I still believe what, what it was. I think most. You know, the, the, the conclusion. I think most people are like that. Um, 
But well, it's it's hard not to be yeah. something. And also, it's an easy trap to fall I into. I think that most people don't remember what they wrote ten years ago. How are what the things that we're saying on the local maximum? How are they going to look in ten years? You think we're well, yeah, you think that, we're going to look good, or you think I you know? That's a Pandora's box that unfortunately I'm not going to be able to. We'll close. find out. Yeah. Um, unless unless we pull all the records from the internet starting now. Yeah. No, I. <laughs> you know. E- even then. Surprisingly, Aaron, I used to be worried about this. I've looked at some things that I've written a long time ago, and uh, and um, well, I don't. Uh, if somebody's trying to get me, it would be interesting to see what they what they come up with, but. Um, I don't have. I've been putting myself out there for a while. There's nothing that I particularly regret. Oh, you you have yet to be targeted with uh, with with a, yeah. a gotcha journalism. As moment. far as I know, I'm the only one with the records on the local, uh, on, not a local maximum I'm on college radio. Maximum maximum is yeah. So we'll see. I'm certainly not <laughs> going to pull it out to um, to uh, play gotcha on the whiz, but. Um, I might have to pull it out to defend myself at some point. So we'll see. But who knows? Maybe somebody recorded it. I, I doubt it. Like, who's going to be tape recording r- random radio? Like, people that do that. There, there are weirdos everywhere. Yeah. All right. <laughs> but but so uh, to, to, to kind of loop back to what we were saying, that uh, what what did he know and when did he know it? Uh, there's there's this big issue with replication, particularly for... So, so uh, Gelman is making the assertion that this this work has been somewhat discredited. The uh, the the Wansink, Wansink, Wansink work. Uh, even his work. Even his thing on Wikipedia says Brian Wansink is a former American professor and discredited researcher who worked in consumer behavior and marketing research. Now, discredited researcher on Wikipedia. I don't always believe it. Yeah, that, it. that raises some red whoa, flags. Whoa, no, no, no. Hold on. Let me say what I was going to say. I don't always believe it if it's on Wikipedia. But if it's on Wikipedia and you're an NPR public intellectual guy, you're in big trouble. <laughs> Those two things don't go together. Yeah. So I, I, I guess the, the, the question is, if, if the consensus has, has moved that, that the work they did was wrong, how has that information propagated uh, you know, through, through both uh, the field itself uh, and the public at large, because I, I remember when some of this stuff was being uh, published originally, that it was all over pop side. Yeah. Um, that 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 uh, it was it was the type of thing that uh, news outlets misrepresent because they read the first couple of lines of the abstract and they get a big headline on it. But you almost never hear any sort of of retraction or correction of that type of thing. And if you do, it's very buried very much within the publications of the field and it never makes it out to the the public facing pop sci aspect of it um are are subliminal and, messages like a real thing uh, and and how much do they really factor into marketing and advertising because i do feel like that is way overblown well i i think that marketing and advertising is not heavily driven by statistics and science right. um and that it is it is a field that is dominated by what what one could reasonably call pseudoscience right right but i mean ultimately the business has to have they have to be doing something right um but like like we say in Foursquare, but, but do they have to be statistically significantly right yeah I, they just always. have to be right enough to keep cashing the checks right right uh i mean it's well known that a big portion of the marketing budget is is always wasted um but they don't know well, which so portion. so one of one of the things about a study like this is that it is replicable uh, is that the right term? Replicable? Sure. It can be replicated. Um, and, and so that is is of huge value in the design of a scientific study. You're talking about the popcorn study? 
Sure, sure. And is that any, even any worth, of these types of is studies. Is that even worth our time replicating? I mean, that just sounds like a well, stupid that, study. That's, like, what is that? That's another what question. What does that teach you? But, it's like, it's a the, study designed to get on TV. <laughs> like, like, seriously. Like, well, well, there's there's a famous one with kids with the uh, the marshmallow. Are you familiar oh, sure. with this one? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, at which, which I believe has also been largely discredited. Really? I didn't know that. Uh, I, I, I think the discredited might be too strong a word, but I, I think much like this uh, study, the conclusions were overinterpreted, that they ran too far Right, away. so they said, okay, the kids who... So <coughs> let's actually talk about the marshmallow and, study. And, and that there may, be, may have been other confounding Aaron, whoa, 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 factors stop, there that stop. weren't accounted for. Not, okay, everybody, step not back. everybody knows the marshmallow study. So uh, that was a study, I don't remember when it was done, but it was like, okay, do you want to eat one marshmallow? They t- took a bunch of kids and they said, do you want to eat one marshmallow now or wait a few minutes and then you get two marshmallows? Is that is that it? Yeah, and, and I think they, they not only had to wait, but the marshmallow was sitting in front of them. So okay. they had to actively resist eating okay, fine. for, for whatever and the period of time And then they correlated was. that to uh, success in life or something like that. Right, and, okay. and there may have been some stuff on, on breaking down what types of children, what, what, what things in their life and their genetics and their upbringing and their environment determined whether they were a eat one now or eat two later kid. Yeah, and... and... Was that significant or, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I almost want to look it up and maybe come back at the end of the show I, and sort of talk a little bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm fuzzy on it, but I feel like there was an episode of the, uh, the Freakonomics radio podcast where they revisited this years afterwards and, and basically came to the conclusion that it, it was perhaps not incorrect, but certainly overblown. Right, right. Okay, um, I could see that. Now, th- this, I could also be falling victim to the Mythbusters fallacy here where I remember that they did this experiment and they talked about it and that there was some shocking reveal. But much like watching an episode of Mythbusters, I remember they blew up something at the end, but I don't remember whether it was confirmed, plausible, or 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 uh, or denied. Yeah. Uh, because they always end with something blowing up. Yep. Yep. So I... I I, I would be, before I I throw the uh, the marshmallow completely under the bus. I, I would have to go and do some actual research since that was not something we had on our on our, our prep notes. <laughs> no, here. no, we went on a tangent. That's we're, okay. We're flying by the seat of the pants yeah. here. A marshmallow tangent, uh, always delicious. Yeah, yeah. So we, we we might have to come back uh, and and either revisit that on a future show or or have something. Talk about in the show revisiting. Notes. What was the he he was also we've since confirmed that Wansink was also behind the bowl of soup thing. Where they keep yes. filling your bowl of soup without you knowing it, and so you eat more and more. What this guy? What is this guy doing to people here? <laughs> Which I think is ingenious. I would love to have that bowl of soup yeah. that never ends. <laughs> Assuming it was good soup. <laughs> well, it, much much like your comment about the the bad Wait, popcorn. But what if earlier, it was it's... matzo ball soup? How they're not going to fit more <laughs> matzo balls in there. Once you just need a bigger pipe. Once you, yeah, once you finish your matzo ball, what happens to the soup? You're, you're just gonna be like, "There's a lot of broth in here." I think the well, soup it's, would be it's, worthless. It's like the 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 classic Jewish joke uh, about oh that restaurant. The food is terrible and the portions so small. Yeah, I'd be mad. I'd be like, <laughs> you know, I'm I have an empty bowl. It's been so long. I don't remember there was ever a matzo ball in it. I ate it 30 minutes ago. <laughs> Wouldn't work. Um, okay. What's the last thing we have here? Oh, uh, Wall Street Journal's talking about this. Uh, 
so they're reviewing a new book, hot off the press. I haven't not read it, but it's called Fraud in the Lab, The High Stakes of Scientific Research. And the um, Wall Street Journal did a whole review on it, and it's exactly on this topic. Um, and the author is Nicola Chavosis Olui. I'm trying to do my best with the French. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I'm glad you tackled that because I did not take French. Yeah, she's a French investigative journalist and a former biomedical researcher. Um, and he talked about the history of uh, fraud in science. So this might be an interesting one to check out. Uh, he points out, they point out in the review at least, there are older, obvious versions of fraud. One example pointed out was a researcher made up data to support IQ being inherited, for example. Um, interestingly enough, there used to be a time when, you know, during eugenics where you were, you know, th that was like the hot topic. You were encouraged to say all these things were just genetic, like IQ and things like that. Um, I, the whole IQ thing is also um, fraught with pseudoscience. Um, but uh, in, in addition, well, actually, the book that I've been reading uh, recently, the, the book on causality, the book, the book of why is called by Judea Pearl, goes into this a little bit. How um, how much does genetics determine determine intelligence? Um, and he used his causal models to determine that. It turns out that there's a lot of intelligence that uh, uh, does not come from genetics, which is interestingly enough. Um, so okay, um, the author of this book argues that all of these this kind of tendency to have fraud come into the, the body of research, or not necessarily fraud, but like mistaken results, p-hacked results, all these things, um, that didn't go away because, like we said, because of all the pressure to publish, because of these this incentive structure. And yeah, I think this is not an accident that this is coming out now. People are starting to realize it, which is a good sign, um, but I don't know if that fixes it. So hopefully, um, hopefully, I think the best we can hope for in the future is not that this ends, but that there's a better there's a better kind of fact checking, you know, information filtering system. And I think people have to almost take it into their own hands when learning about these studies that come out. Yeah, I was I was gonna say one of one of the biggest red flags is and, and that's it doesn't apply to the uh the Wansink case here, uh, but if you're trying to replicate something and they will not provide you with the data they used. Uh, if they refuse to share the raw data, that, that sends up huge red flags for the the validity of their conclusions uh, because it's a, a, a major roadblock to replication. Yeah. Uh, and that is something you you do see in in, in some studies. Um, for, for whatever reason, they're, they're saying that they, they can't or won't share that information. Yeah. Um, and, and that's not necessarily being held up as as a reason to uh, to reconsider the conclusions they've drawn, because it's it's very much inside baseball for the academics that uh, there. I think there should be more kind of investigative journalism going on with this type of stuff. Um, it's it's a tough sell because the uh, certainly the American public isn't going to uh, sit through to listen to to all the nitty gritty. They 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 don't know enough already and they're not necessarily willing to listen to learn enough about these details but it's it's an important work that needs to be done and and checked and rechecked yeah well uh to end let me actually end with like a personal story because i find this interesting so i as you know i used to suffer from these really painful canker sores that i would get 
um, and I was getting them very frequently last year, very difficult to work and do the, the podcast. Um, and I went to doctors, and every doctor had something different to say, uh, and nobody fixed the problem. Um, eventually, when I pushed harder and harder, they started suggesting that I do these tests that would be thousands of dollars. And But I was like, well, they didn't even know what was, what was happening to begin with. So I decided to, okay, I'm going to use my kind of data science minds. I'm going to start taking a log of everything I do that could be related. Um, and I'm going to take a log of, of when this happens. And I told the, even though it, it could be like almost an embarrassing problem, I told everyone I met about the problem that I was having for like two months. And one person, um, I, I don't know if, if they, they want to they want me to say who it was, but it's someone who has been a guest on this show told me, oh yeah, I know what's happening. You're being poisoned by your toothpaste. Okay, and it's because the toothpaste has this chemical in it. I, now that that sounds like a you know chemtrails conspiracy oh, theory level. and this is you know, there, there's there's poison in your toothpaste, then it's making you sick. No, seriously, this is a person who has other beliefs that are more chemtrail type. <laughs> so I was a little bit uh, you know skeptical, um, but. I thought, um, you know, well, well, first of all, I decided to look it up online, right? And there were a few studies that this chemical SLS that they put in toothpaste doesn't make your teeth cleaner, but it makes the toothpaste seem like it's working. So some, you know, a, a lot of like Crest, it was in, in the Crest toothpaste I was using. And there were a few scientific studies, but I read them and I was skeptical. I was like, okay, um, this happened and... You know, they, they did this study on 15 people. And yes, they saw a significant decline like after taking it. So it wasn't like apples to apples. It's not like they had some people not take it and other people take it. They just had everyone take it and see what happens kind of right. a thing. And, you know, so I was very skeptical about, uh, about, the, about the findings. But then I decided to try it myself. That was the one variable I was going to change because I was like, okay, this is happening once every, every, every month basically for a week. So, and changing toothpaste was the most low cost thing I could do. You know, so I did that. Now it's been like six months and haven't had anywhere. I used to get every, get them once a month. So, yeah. So I, I mean, to me, anecdote is not the, uh, the, the singular of data. It's hard for but, me not uh, to draw a conclusion. But it worked for you. So yeah, it's hard for me not to draw a conclusion. So I, I think there's a lot that goes that, that, that is going wrong here. One, you had these results that were, I guess they were not well-funded, but also not well-publicized, but also like the, the, the doctors had no idea. And I'm just like, I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around what is the problem with science, particularly medical science in this case, um, that I didn't get those results sooner. Because I feel like if I had this answer 10 years ago, um, I would, I mean... I just think of so many times being under the weather when I didn't have to be. And uh, I don't know if it's because of, like I said, like the, the, the scientific studies were right and those are the ones that were maybe not um, valid or not valid, but like easy to poke holes in. But on the other hand, like what are, you know, what are the doctors looking into? I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, <laughs> all right. So if anyone has any ideas on this, localmaxradio at gmail.com. Any last thoughts, Aaron, before we call it a day? Uh, if, if you can't believe science, then what can you believe? So we, we need to put some pressure on, on those in the scientific fields to make sure that, that they're, they're doing everything to protect the integrity of the field, not by preventing uh, 
the overturning of, of findings, uh, but but by doing the rigorous work to confirm or refute them, because fundamentally that's that's part of the scientific method is to make a hypothesis, and if you disprove it, we have learned something. Yeah, it, it's not a failure; it's it's a success in another another it's direction. It's too late. It's too late. No, I think the distinction. I was trying to go out on a positive <laughs> note here. Bring us all down. A distinction should be made by science and scientific scientists in the scientific community. Um, you know, one is the unobjective pursuit of truth and the other is a bunch of humans who suffer from uh who have the same faults that all humans do it's part of yeah. being oh, and, and and we've we've touched on it tangentially but there is the whole uh scientific journals as a business right. issue uh that that only complicates all of the symptoms we've talked about yep. here all right aaron uh i think i'm gonna call it a day thanks for doing a double header with me today uh, this will go out. I'm not sure if this is going to be uh, which episode this is going to be, but uh, this will go out soon. Very good episode. Well, uh, to to those of you in the future, uh, farewell. All right. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com if you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show. Send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. The show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.